Hello, welcome to Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us for another show. We've got Glenn back this week. Last week we didn't have Glenn with us, and uh, we're glad to have Glenn with us today. We also have a special guest, and we're going to let him introduce himself in a moment. But uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, so I am three hours behind uh, Tom and Glenn, but I'm even farther behind in time uh, from our special guest today, who is uh, with us from France, uh, and I'll let him tell you a little bit more about that in a second. But uh, I've written some books, and one of those books is In the House of Tom Bombadil, and that's relevant because we're going to be talking about our favorite author today, J.R.R. Tolkien. Okay, Tom, tell us about yourself. I'm Tom Price. I'm adjunct professor of Christian uh, theology, uh, ethics, and philosophy at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and I'm working on a book, an ethics book that ties together a metaphysics of creation with ethical reflection on current issues. Great. Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm Professor Emeritus of History at Central Connecticut State University, a specialist in the French Reformation, in fact. Uh, I am currently a ministry associate of Reflections Ministries and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And as Glenn has kind of intimated, his uh, sort of uh, field of study is relevant uh, today in, in a number of ways because of our special guest. Yannick, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do and um, where you are. Uh, my name is uh, Yannick Imbert, uh, Yannick Imbert for uh, sometime in the U.S. Um, <laughs> sometimes it's easier to say, so easier to spell. I remember when I was uh, living in the U.S. for my Ph.D., every time I would call someone, a company or an insurance company, uh, it was always a bit of a problem. So Imbert, it seems, is uh, more intuitive for my American friends. So either way, Imbert, Imbert. Um, I teach apologetics and a bit of church history here in uh, Aix-en-Provence, small re reform seminary in um, southern France. We are about, uh, yeah, about half an hour away from Marseille, uh, the second, well, depending on who you ask, but I think the second largest city uh, in France. I teach, yeah, I teach mostly apologetics. Um, I've written a few books of apologetics, nothing in, in church history yet. Um, I've written um, a textbook of apologetics because there's um, there's really not much written by French theologians uh, in the field of uh, of apologetics, not by Catholics um, who you know occupy the field much more than uh, than Protestants um, do these days. Uh, it's coming, but um, not you know, there's not yet a great literature in. Uh, in, in French for that. I've written also a book on transhumanism, um, great cultural, very important cultural movement, if you ask me. Um, but I think I've guessed that you guys have talked about it already. So <laughs> maybe your listeners uh, already know a little bit of about what transhumanism is, uh, robots and all that. It, not only that, but you know. Um, and lately, my latest book is, uh, is one on Tolkien on which I've done my uh, my PhD thesis long time ago, but it took me about 10 years to go back to that and start uh, doing something with it. Oh, interesting. And it's all gone. Yeah. Well, that's, 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 that's interesting to hear because I, I didn't know that was your your PhD thesis. We, we've known each other a little while. We have a mutual friend, and we, we were yeah, together yeah. in New England years ago and, and met in person. And uh, so anyways, it's great to have you on the show. And great we to wanted... Yeah, we want to talk about uh, your latest book, this book on uh, Tolkien. It's entitled From Imagination to Fairy, or Fairy, and its uh, subtitle is Tolkien's Thomas Fantasy. Now, this is fascinating because, uh, you know, in the reform world right now, there's a lot of buzz about Thomism, uh, and a group of folks uh, who are making, I think, a really good case for a kind of reformed scholasticism that... Uh, is on good terms with with Thomism, and then there are folks who are like you know that's uh, that gives us the hives. We don't want anything to do with <laughs> Tom or Thomas or anything like that. But uh, you've done some really great and I think important work here in the in the book. Uh, I I was I had the privilege of taking a look at it before it was published, and I actually blurbed it. <laughs> and yeah, thanks for blurbing about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I enjoyed it, and uh, I think the things that you're getting into in the book 
are helpful with regard to understanding Tolkien and how he thinks, of course, but also for the cultural moment we find ourselves in, particularly all of the consternations surrounding the subject of language and how it's become just something that's just uh, understood to be a tool and instrumentalized and a, and a way of getting your way and stuff like that. So it'd be really great to see, uh, you know, uh, more books like this who help uh, readers understand, you know, the, the reason why Tolkien is just so appealing is because he doesn't think in those terms. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. He's got a whole different yeah. approach to language, an older approach. But but, why, but I'm kind of stealing your thunder. <laughs> why, <laughs> why, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book? <laughs> well, um, how to summarize like a 300 pages book in like two, uh, two minutes. <laughs> um, for, for me, the, uh, the, the idea behind the book was, um, well, I was, I was trained as a, as an apologist thinking that everything you do, um, comes from what you, what you, at the core, what you believe about the world, uh, whether the world exists, whether it's an illusion, what makes sense of the world, if there is something that gives meaning to the world. Um, and with a thinker and a writer, because I think Tolkien is not just a writer. Um, I think we restrict him if we just talk about the fantasy writer. Um, he is a thinker also, uh, and that's why he was so particular with everything he wrote. Uh, almost maniac about it, you know, a bit obsessive uh, with a lot of details, which is why we need to pay attention to details when we were talking, um, even the um, seemingly innocent details, and those who don't seem to have a place in the story, like well, that Tom Bombadil, which we're familiar with. <laughs> right, right. Um, so that led me to really wonder what, what was at the, the foundation of Tolkien's view of fantasy, of language, because he, he was a philologist by, not just by trade and training, but by love. Um, uh, and that's something that distinguishing Tolkien from some of the, his contemporaries in the theory of language um, so I started my, my thinking about Tolkien when I was, I think I was doing my, kind of like the THM here in France, and I was doing something on good and evil in the Lord of the Rings, something a bit boringly standard, you know, <laughs> fine. Um, and then I was pushed by my, um, by one of the jury members who was teaching at Westminster Seminary at the time and was doing a lot of work in uh, cultural apologetics. Uh, Bill Edgar, um, if you know, if you know him, um, it feels more like jazz and music, but you tell him about fiction and he's all for it. Imagination is his thing. Um, so it pushed me to, to go further and deeper and really investigate what really was driving Tolkien's thinking and writing. So, so I did. Um, and um, I, it didn't take long before I realized that really Tolkien's faith was the, the it was not just like a factor, it's just not an element of who he is. It was really who he was. Um, and because it was so constitutive of his nature as a person, um, his writing, which was so personal, um, and so many level, Tolkien's writing is a personal writing. Um, it could only bear the mark of his of his faith. Um, so once you start there and you wonder what Tolkien's faith really is, um, well, you quickly realize that he's not a mere Christian. Um, no big debate between him and, and Lewis. Right. Uh, <laughs> no, if Lewis could write mere Christianity, um, Tolkien could never write, write mere Christianity. Maybe he could, he could write uh, mere Catholic Tridentine Christianity, <laughs> uh, but not mere Christianity, no way. Yeah, it's a fascinating observation because uh, if I remember correctly, Tolkien was critical of Lewis's apologetic uh, interests. Ah, yeah. I mean, Tolkien could be... <laughs> Quite direct. Uh, I mean, you know, when uh, when he writes in uh, one of the letters to um, to one of his Catholic uh, friends, um, I can't remember his name, who was uh, a father, uh, and said that he could not even uh, publish his review of uh, letters to um, letters Malcolm. to Malcolm. Yeah, letters to yeah. Malcolm because it was yeah. so theoretically bad. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not, it, maybe it's not the best of Lewis's work, even on theology, 
But it's a, it's a little bit of a stretch to think that it is not good. You can't even publish a decent review of the book. Um, Tolkien was a bit opinionated, but because he had a strong, um, he had a strong faith uh, and he had a strong Catholic conviction. Um, and that's why he could never be a mere Christian. Um, he was a Catholic. He was a Roman Catholic, which is also a specific, you know, beast. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was a Roman Catholic that was raised in Birmingham uh, at the end of the 19th century. And that meant that he was also living with, well, pretty much under the shadow of John Henry Newman. Um, yeah. And for yeah. those listeners, who, I mean, for those who know him or those who don't know him, um, Newman was largely responsible for one of the great renewal of Catholicism in England at the end of the 19th century. Yeah. Um, we, some, some people talk, some experts talk about first, second, and, and third spring of Catholicism in England. Uh, while Newman studied it all, uh, when he converted from Anglicism, uh, so, um, Anglican theology to, uh, to Roman Catholicism, that was a big deal. Um, there was a, actually an uproar in England at the time when he, uh, converted. Um, and Tolkien grew, uh, under the shadow of Newman, um, and Newman was essentially a Thomist, yeah. a great educator. It's probably one of the greatest mind uh, in England since, mm-hmm. I don't really know, but maybe since Ansel, uh, if I can go that far. Um, I, I don't, I'm not ready to, to make the case here on the show, but I would almost make the case that he was the greatest mind in England uh, since uh, St. Ansel. Wow. Um, and everything in Tolkien, like, is Thomism. Uh, so, so, really so there's some there are some interesting things to to sort of dive into here with with you, Yannick. One of the th- one of those things, of course, is uh, here you are a reformed theologian writing about uh, Tolkien <laughs> and Thomism, <laughs> and um, then there is there's also the fact that you know we're talking about uh, an English author and you're French. Um, what what yes <laughs> so what what uh kind of drew you into all of this i mean you know in in this in, in a certain way we would think that well that that this would be the last person that a person like any could be interested in uh on many many aspects he should be the last person i should be interested in <laughs> um but i started talking when i was really young i was 12 uh and i was gifted talking's lord of the rings um, in French or in English? Also, uh, in French at the time. Uh, and then I started reading it in English uh, much later because um, at the time, French didn't have a very good uh, foreign language education. Some people would say it's still the case. but So I started with a French one. And the French, um, there was a French translation at the time. We have a second one now. The first one was awful. Um, it's like a orcish work. It's butchered. Uh, it almost sounds like black speech to me sometimes. Um, mm. But that's what that's one I had. Uh, I was also at the time doing a lot of uh, role-playing games in the talk, in talking world, uh, which was really big at, big at the time. Um, the uh, role-playing game of, of Middle-earth was the <laughs> game to play. So that's how I came to talking. <laughs> Nothing to do with this Christian faith or blah, blah, blah. That, Right. Just purely, um, actually, purely enjoyment of the story, and I think in a way, Tolkien would I would have loved that, um, not just to dissect the story, uh, but to enjoy it. In a way, it always reminds me of um, remember this episode, this uh, talk between Gandalf and Saruman, um, when um, Saruman has this uh, coat of many colors. Yeah. Um, and Gandalf um, said like something to the to, to the effect that he preferred white, and Salman said that white can be broken in many colors. <laughs> um, this whole phenomenon, like people like to dissect stories, um, Tolkien like to put words in sto- and, and make a story with words. So I kind of like got in love with Tolkien because of that. I love stories. I love fantasy. I love creating worlds. Um, and I read Tolkien pretty much once or twice a year mm. at the beginning. I still read it about once a year. 
So I read Tolkien many, 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 many times. And when it came to my THM here in X, studying Tolkien was, you know, obvious. <laughs> Especially because in apologetics, you can study anything you want yeah. and pretend it's for work. My students sometimes like, why do you, uh, why do you specialize in apologetics? In like the arguments, uh, you know, sharing uh, the faith. And like, no, it's because I can watch uh, a great movie and uh, call that work. So that was the obvious path for me. Um, and well, at the beginning, I was convinced, I, I had no idea that Tolkien was Christian. Uh, and, you know, I came from a, a reformed evangelical background, charismatic background, where, honestly, Catholics might be saved. No, they're not saved. <laughs> no. right, right, right. They can't be. I mean, right. Maybe a few, a few charismatic Catholics, <laughs> which is probably antithetical. Right. How can you be both? But we'll give them a pass. Uh, but a standard Roman Catholic? I don't think so. Um, so it was really a, an effort for me. You know, it, it, there's something there. Um, but I was quite young at the time also. Um, and really the, the studies when I was in my PhD program, um, that brought more into the focus that Tolkien was really a man of faith. Um, I mean, a lot of my students ask me if I believe that he was really a believer. Um, and that's also the field of maybe my book, but uh, when you see Tolkien's letters to his sons, um, actually, more his son than, than his daughter, uh, Priscilla, actually, but when you see his, um, kind of like his, his, pastoral, his pastoral counseling uh, on issues where people would find him very archaic, you know, like marriage, love, sex, um, even the meaning of the sacraments, um, you, it, it's obvious that he really believed the stuff. It's not just words or a pure habit. Uh, when he goes to Vesper, when he goes to the Mass, uh, it's not by pure habit. Um, especially by, because by in England by the time, you don't do that just by pure habit. It's out of fashion. Yeah. It was... No, it was trendy in the end of the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, you went to church because it's socially accept necessary to do so. Uh, not in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, certainly not in the 1950s. Um, and that was actually very um, informative for me to see that uh, there was real faith there. Uh, it's not a view of the mind. Uh, when we see his work and when we see his letters, um, there's no denying that his faith was at the, the core of everything he did. Um, and, and that's a bit my controversial statement, um, which is not unique. You know, I'm not the only one to say that. Um, then another book, um, and maybe you had him on, on the show, I don't know. If not, maybe that's a guy you should have, uh, Jonathan McIntosh. Huh. Yeah, we yeah, we we uh, are familiar with Jonathan. We've not had him on the show, though. Yeah, uh, Jonathan, McKin I, I don't know him personally, but um, I discovered that he did his PhD on Tolkien and his metaphysical background uh, the very same year I graduated. Uh, so we did the same, pretty much the same um, direction, the same thesis. Uh, he argues more on the side of philosophy yeah. and metaphysics. Yeah. Um, and I bring a bit more of the, the historical, historical context um, behind Tolkien's work. Yeah. Uh, but we're trying to say the same. Yeah. Even in English, you're a better writer. <laughs> <laughs> he, is, he is ponderous to get through. Really interesting <laughs> stuff, but it, but it is ponderous, I've got to say. He <laughs> is very interesting. I found it a dance. Yeah. Exactly. It's fascinating that um, we both argue for Cath for Tolkien being a Thomist writer, not just a Catholic thinker, yeah. a yeah. Thomist, um, and he a pre-Vatican one Thomist, not just yeah. a Thomist. You no, know, it's it's very specific. Well, uh, let's let's dive into that a little bit. Uh, so you know, as I'm looking at the book. 
you know, it's 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 uh, broken up into sections. Um, and the, the first section uh, has to do with language, if I remember right. Well, you, you get into his Catholic background in chapter yeah. one. Uh, but then we're into uh, Tolkien and the science of language. And then uh, you spend a number of chapters, uh, you know, related to that on themes related to that. For example, the nature of words, uh, the aesthetics of words um, before you get into myth. But let's just focus on language uh, for a little bit. OK, Chris, one second before we go there, I just for. Um, those of our listeners who may or may not be getting hives at the reference to uh, Thomism, uh, something to remember about Catholics. We are justified by faith. We are not justified by believing in justification by faith. <laughs> That's an important <laughs> distinction. That's it's, important it's, distinction. An, it's an important it's distinction that we need to keep in mind whenever we're dealing with people that we disagree with. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. And, absolutely. and uh, another Quick, quick note, which may be worth getting into uh, before we get into that. That that is, Thomism is a is not just. Uh, I mean, like you you mentioned a very specific kind of Thomism. Um, a lot of people, I think, in the Protestant world, think of Thomism as one thing, um, and they don't realize yeah. the varieties of indebtedness to mm -hmm. Thomas, including uh, Protestants. Um, so maybe just kind of. Uh, maybe giving a, a very brief explanation of the kind of Thomism you're talking about <clears throat> with Tolkien. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, so Tolkien was a Thomist, but a pre-Vatican I Thomist, uh, in the sense that Tolkien rejected everything that came um, in a modern worldview. So I don't know if we can really qualify Tolkien as, a, as an anti-modern uh, but it was clearly reacting against all the forms of modernism uh, in language, uh, the place of materialism and the scientific method uh, within the faith, um, because that influenced every, um, every brand of Christian theology, Protestant, Evangelical, mm -hmm. Catholic, mm -hmm. Thomist, um, all of those branches were under the influence of modernism at the time of Tolkien's education. So 19, 1910, for example. Um, Tolkien's outlook is really pre-modern. Um, maybe not anti-modern, but clearly pre-modern. Um, in that, that he finds um, substance in everything. Um, and for language, for example, uh, he finds that la language as a substance. It is something in itself. Um, yeah. And if you mess with language, uh, in a way, you mess with the structure and the nature of the world. Uh, yeah. And that's why with talking, it's so important to be careful about what you do with language. Um, from the influence of Barfield, which I know also appeared on the show once or twice, um, <laughs> to... Um, to his very specific view of translation, uh, language is something you need to be extremely careful about because it is the core of who we are as human beings. Hmm. So before you go, before you um, go any further, Yannick, why don't you spend a little time helping our listeners understand uh, sort of the modern or maybe different modern approaches to language that Tolkien would be, you know, you know, uh, unhappy with or reject because I think. For a lot of folks, they just think, well, language is language. I mean, you know, it, it's not something people think about very much. They just have, they assume that sort of people have always thought about language the same way, and it just happens to be the same way they do. <laughs> so <laughs> You're right. In a way, we, we don't really think about language because it's something we use so naturally that we don't think about what it is. Um, it's Tolkien's strength to help us think about what is language. Um, and Tolkien was reacting to several um, several alternatives or several theories, uh, some that were influential in his time, some that were influential when he was trained as a philologist. Um, in his own times, he was trying to react against a view, a material view where uh, the words we use uh, are completely arbitrary. Uh, we talk, we say elephant for the animal, uh, but you could call that uh, cheesecake would be the same. 
Um, the words, the words themselves have no bearing on the object they describe. Um, and the one of the main proponents of that view uh, around Tolkien's time was uh, was a Frenchman. Or was it Swiss actually? Oops, Ferdinand de Saussure. I think it was French. Saussure. Saussure, I think it was French. Yeah. Uh, who pretty much said that the words are arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that's very clear in his Cours de Linguistique. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. his uh, Linguistic 101. And when you read the stuff, you're like, that's Linguistics 101? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you try to read the stuff, but I'm not a linguist. <laughs> I come from the field of biology before my before theology. <laughs> So for me, so things, what on earth is talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is clear. yeah. I was a linguistics major as an undergrad. I, one of the things I loved about your book, you start with linguistics, you move to mythology, which was my passion as a, as a child and into adulthood. And then I discovered fairy through Tolkien. So exactly, your, your your book is is just about perfect for me. But I, as a linguistics major, one of the first things they pounded into our head is that words are arbitrary. Yeah, that is exactly what what they tell you. So they'll say, for example, um, the, my computer is sitting on a table right now. There's nothing about the physical object that connects to the sound table directly it's just it's a convention that we use there's there's nothing more there's no more tableness in this thing than there is mesa-ness because mesa is another word for table in another language so if different languages have different words for the same thing how can it be anything but arbitrary that was the argument uh, and Tolkien is completely at the opposite of that absolutely uh, he, has, he has a very much uh, a substantial view of language where the words you use, and it's difficult for us to 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 see that, uh, and even me, after like going so deep in talking, um, it's so foreign to the way we think about language, words, and their meaning that sometimes yeah. I even have trouble like what does that really mean? But talking is ages away from that, um, and you see that in the Lord of the Rings at many uh, many times, and I think the. F- First clear example um, is in, um, I think it's in volume two, uh, several times volume two, which almost is the uh, the core of uh, Tolkien's linguistics is in uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, I think the first example where you see this intrinsic meaning of language um, is when um, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas when they are chasing the orcs who have taken Merry and Pippin, uh, they cross into Rohan, the great plant of Rohan. Um, and there, Aragorn uh, sing one of the poems of Rohan in the language of Rohan, which we don't have, by the way. I wish that Tolkien had made up this language. <laughs> I'm much more interested in the language of Rohan than the elves. I mean, I can't say that I don't care for the language of the elves. Uh, but I would much prefer Rohan, but eh, we don't have it. Um, and then Legolas says something very interesting, and um, I, paraf- I mean, I could have—I have some. Actually, I have the book here. Um, I think he says, um, "Yeah, he says that is, I guess, language of the Rohirrim, for it is like the land itself, rich and rolling in part, and else hard and stern as the mountains." What you see there is that for talking language, not only as meaning but you cannot dissociate language from, not only from the physical object, but almost from the land itself. Hmm. Um, the sign cannot be arbitrary. It directs you yeah. to like the, the thing that it talks about, the physical object, like you say, Glenn, but also it directs you to the, the, the whole culture, the whole history of the people. Um, yeah. And that's why yeah. talking yeah. will be horrified when we use French or English in a language that's not our own. Um, if I'm French, I'm, I'm using English. Um, I'm, in a way, I, I'm importing something in my language that is, for talking, un-understandable. Yeah. Um, this this comes to us. Yeah. You know? This comes up in all sorts of places in Lord of the Rings. I think about, for example, uh, you know, re- you know, getting back to, to 
Legolas and you know the uh, you know Rohan, uh, the Ro- the Ro- Rohim. Uh, they have a. At one point, I remember him saying, you know, he was listening to the men sing, and he he commented that it was uh, definitely something that men would sing because of the nature of the of the music reflected the experience of mortal men, and but then then there's uh, the Ents uh, and their ponderous language <laughs> which, in which every word is a history of the thing it's it's describing but but the, but this idea that uh, language could do that I think reflects a, a very uh, profound and Christian conviction that uh, the Lagos uh, is the, at the at the base or at, is, is the substance that is to be found uh, beneath the surface of everything language, People, uh, objects, the world. So the the fact that there would be some, um, I guess, uh, correspondence in the just in the nature of things uh, should make sense to us as Christians. It always should make sense, and uh, you know, there's there's not a lot of talk about the origin of language in talking, uh, <clears throat> because for for most people to talk about the origin of language. It's kind of weird. Um, like there should, there could be like a, a supernatural original language. Yeah. Language is yeah. human, so of course it's just an evolution of our, you know, linguistic capacity. Um, and talking actually answers uh, or responds or puts an alternative to uh, the theories that he um, he learned when he was a, a student uh, in philology. Um, and most of those theories, especially that of a, um, a British subject, but was German uh, by birth, um, Max Müller, Müller, mm-hmm. uh, Müller. I'm not really sure how to pronounce that in English. Um, was one of the one of the great mind of uh, of the end of the Victorian era. I mean, there's also no doubt about it. Uh, a fascinating guy to study, um, but he thought that. Um, Myth was a disease of language, right? So he, he allowed language to be the driving factor of culture, with which Tolkien would agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in Tolkien studies, we we hammer down like Max Müller being like the bad guy. In a way, yes, his view of language is not what Tolkien would allow. No, Tolkien defends something much deeper. But everything starts with language, and in that is with Tolkien, um, and it's not arbitrary. Um, but the, the relationship between language and story in Max Miller would be opposite to what Tolkien would you know, would construct. Yes. Um, yeah, so one of, one of the things that we de- we're suffering from today is this impoverished view of language, which is what mm-hmm. uh, you know the postmodern turn has uh, sort of pointed to as. Uh, just a power game. So because it's arbitrary, that means the only basis uh, for language is the interests of the people speaking. So if you have, a, 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 a say, a society that is unjust uh, and the people who kind of order it are looking out for themselves, then all the language is intended to reinforce that. Um, and that's how people... Uh, deconstruct, or that's sort of the assumption behind deconstruction. So uh, we we take uh, words and we just kind of, uh, again, kind of put them uh, into the hands of various parties, and then they use them to get what they want. Um, and what, de- you know, the, the postmodern or the deconstructionist or the woke or whatever you want to uh, say to describe those people, their, 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 their argument is that we need to sort of empower uh, these uh, marginal people and groups and give them, uh, you know, the right to name themselves and et cetera. And that's, and that it works its way into transgenderism where a person can rename him or herself uh, and so forth. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Glenn. Now, now the, the two observations sound this both going in different directions. In one sense, the postmodernists are echoing some of Tolkien's ideas about language in that language to Tolkien is 
deeply embedded in and intertwined with culture, and the two of them are inextricable. So the post the postmodernist would agree with that point, although he disagree with everything else that Tolkien had to say about language and what the implications of that are. The other part of it, though, is that you know uh, Yannick made the point that in a lot of ways the ants embody Tolkien's attitude toward language; that it is deeply embedded in the past; that there's a history there. Uh, that actually the history is almost completely inaccessible to us in terms of determining what the exact meaning of a word was in the past because we're we're in a different place and the word has changed in meaning and our environment is different and we can't completely recapture that but the ants do with their with their single words that are uh, that that occupy centuries or millennia of time when you contrast that to your preferred pronoun <laughs> which we're just making things up now. Right. That that really kind of that that shows the extreme difference between the two in terms of their attitude toward language. I you know I think that's probably the most concrete example. Yeah. No, I think you you you're both right, uh, Chris and Ben. And um, to go back to what you were saying, Chris, about the uh, language of empowerment, um, I'm always struck by the fact that Sauron, um, to put in words. The like the poems of the rings, you know, one ring, three rings, the seven rings, the nine rings, and on the one ring, it is written in elvish script. Yeah, it's not written in black speech script. It's almost like Sauron is trying to hijack language because somehow elvish written words in elvish would magically convey more power. Of course it does not, um, but he's trying to empower his own speech through Elvis script. Yeah, actually, Tolkien says something to the effect that there are no letters in Mordor to, that are subtle enough for what is happening there. So he has to hijack Elvish. And he has to hijack. And that's the fascinating, th fascinating thing about language that belongs to the orcs and to Sauron. Uh, and that also is very anti-postmodern, anti-modern, um, the language for Tolkien really um, displays, actually not even display, it's, it's deeply to re related to the moral nature of the speaker. Right. You hear a language, and in the language is the story, the history, the meaning, the perception of the world also, um, and in that is very much in line with Barfield, uh, for whom uh, words, it's about meaning, it's also about perception of the world. Um, and that's something we have completely missed also. I, uh, yeah. I was going to add right there, I think this is where the Thomism uh, becomes very significant, because I think, I think right here is, is where you have the fact that for Thomas, um, be being is intelligible and being is communicative, and I think th I think that that's where you have you have essence basically structuring existence, and and for for him that communicative dimension sets the groundwork for language not to be arbitrary but to actually be participating in this. And I, I you know I would say when I read Tolkien I see this vast field of communication. Um, that isn't arbitrary, but they, but you see where people can kind of deceive and try to pull it away from its grounding in the communicative nature of being. And, and you know, the fascinating thing about that is, again, you see that mostly, I mean, incarnated, embodied um, in tribute's view of language. Huh. Um, but for me, what's fascinating is um, there is a there's a contemporary inability to understand what talk, what Tribute is saying here, yeah. um, to the point that sometimes you hear Tolkien's experts say that what when Tribute say that in a name, there is pretty much like our very being there, and that's why we should yeah. be careful about telling who our, what our real name is. They think that it's a, it's, it's a magical view of words. Yeah. It's not a magical view of words. It's an essentialist view of words. Yes, yes. Your world, your name 
is who you are. It's not magic. It's it's essentialism. Yes. Um, it's your substance, who you are as an individual, individuated, individual, individuated person. Yeah. Is conveyed in the word. Yeah. Nothing to do with magic. Um, and for me, the most surprising is great talking scholars, even Verling Flagger, Flagger, Flieger, we'd say in English. Yeah, uh, who is probably one of the top three talking scholars. Mm -hmm. um, probably she's been since the 80s. Um, sometimes she even goes in that direction. The, the words carry magic. They don't carry magic. <laughs> um, but you can't see that unless you allow talking to be a full-blown Thomist in everything he says and writes. Um and that is not very trendy to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At the most, you're going to find people say that Tolkien's faith was one influence mm. out of many. Right. Um, it was not one. It was the definitive factor that made him who he is. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, again, it's not very trendy to say that. We'd like his faith to be more... You know, well, private. Well, well, maybe maybe what we see is what you just uh, you know talked about. Uh, there are people who want something from Tolkien, but they don't want this. They <laughs> uh, want to put Tolkien into their own script. You know, their own sort of. They've got their own agenda, and they want to use him to pursue that agenda. But when you have a, a thoroughgoing understanding of just you know, who this guy was. And um, there's just no way you can use him in the ways that they want to use him. And they do violence to him. You know, I, I was thinking about um, just when we think about scripture, right from the start, uh, we have language, God speaks and things are so. And so, and then we have Adam who is told or commanded to give the animals their names they, they're, they're brought before him. Now, the, the, how people tend to think about that says a lot about their theory of language, because I think most mm -hmm. modern people, when they read the story of Adam naming the animals, it's an arbitrary act. They, they, they don't, it's not as though Adam is perceiving the essence of the thing he is beholding and finding the right word. It's just, well, I'll just call this whatever. At, at best, there's an onomatopoeia uh, kind of dynamic that goes on. And again, uh, in that, Tolkien has been really informed, I think by Newman, but mostly by Barfield, uh, who sees a deep connection between perception and meaning and words. Perception, meaning, and words. Um, not just, it's not just meaning and words. Yes, a word um, is directed towards a physical object. But it's also about a perception of the object. Um, and in a way, what Adam is seen doing in uh, Genesis 2 is contemplating the object. Yes. Perceiving it for what it is. And because he sees what it is, it's like its essence, then he names it. Um, and in a way, that exactly the view of Tribune. Um, <laughs> yeah, and hence the debate was like, well, you hobbits are a bit hasty uh, because you you give out your essence, right? Well, and this also and this also gets to a, a, a very a tr you know sort of damaging or or, or a, a troubling turn in the modern outlook where perception and essence are completely separated. Yeah. So, so in the modern turn, you know, you, you, if you think about say, you know, the the empiricists. Uh, it, what you have is this idea that, okay, I get sense data and I create a little model of the outside world with that sense data, but I, but I carry a model in my head that actually doesn't truly know the things in themselves. Yeah, yeah. the link is cut. Yeah. The link is cut. I'm, I'm completely trapped in my head. And that's kind of at the root of this, I guess, tendency that we have to uh, make uh, – Make it uh, make it seem as though perception is uh, almost arbitrary, and that, that mm -hmm. consequently we can kind of manipulate perception uh, and not uh, lie in the process.
And in a way, that's exactly what Saruman is doing when it changes from white to multicolor um, tunic, uh, because his perception has changed. Huh. Uh, because he wanted to change his perception. He wanted to break the nature of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is one of the most metaphysically wonderful statements in Tolkien. Yep. Yeah. It's this, um, this talk between Gandalf and Saruman about breaking things. Um, it is about breaking the essence of things, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which is what the postmodern mind is trying to do. Yeah. Uh, deconstruction yeah. is breaking things down mm-hmm. in order to gain the most, the smallest part of human knowledge. Mm-hmm. There is no smallest possible part of human knowledge. Yeah. Human knowledge is a whole. Yeah. Um, and I mean, in there, Tolkien is really following Newman. Newman had a, a holistic view yeah. of uh, of human life. Uh, he was a theologian. He was an educator. He he had an uh, almost had an opinion on, on anything, but he had a view, a global view of human life. Yeah. Right. Um, you yeah. cannot break apart human life and then construct human life. It's completely impossible. What, which is what Saruman is trying to do with his multicolor um, right. no, coat there. Yeah, what, 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 what we, what, you know, when you dissect a frog, you kill the frog. <laughs> and when you dissect human beings in, in the way that, you know, you're describing, you kill them too and turn them into the objects that you can manipulate and, and, and change. So I'm, I'm doing some work right now in, um, you know, uh, totalitarianism, trying to understand mm-hmm. yeah, right. yeah, the reflections that people have, uh, you know, thinking that people... Uh, you know, uh, kind of developed in the wake of World War II when everybody was just so uh, puzzled, you know, you know, what happened. And right now I'm, I'm, I'm working my way through a book entitled The Rape of the Mind. And in that book, um, what you have is uh, in, a, in a, a, a sort of a, a window into the mindset of totalitarians. They really did view the human being like Pavlov, like we're Pavlov's dogs. And they, they were trying to recondition. So when you get to the, the camps, you know, if you're talking about the gulags or the concentration camps, it, it, those were places uh, for, in their mind, scientific kind of experimentation on reconditioning people and turning them into the Soviet man, for example. But the idea in their mind is they were, they were doing something scientific. They weren't just simply sadistic. Uh, and I think many of us just think of them as sadists. Now, I'm not saying that there wasn't sadism in, in play, but but, uh, but <laughs> they were justifying it in their own minds, and they thought of themselves as as sort of just experimenting on the human animal. And, and you know, all that brings talking really in um, how to put that. I've always been fascinated by the way Tolkien seems to be a great hero of our modern times, where honestly, if people knew what he believed, uh, <laughs> they would run away and burn him at a stake. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, honestly, he's, he might be patriarchal, um, not as egalitarian as you want, uh, definitely not for the fluidity of language. Um, he really believed that everything as a substance, and you can't mess with that yeah. without destroying the world. Yeah. Um, he believed that language had its origin in God. Um, and it doesn't put that very explicitly. Uh, I think only once, uh, I think it's one of the letters, uh, he actually said that the origin of language is the same as the origin of the mind, hmm. and he leaves it there. Um well, what is the origin of the human mind? <laughs> Evolution, pure chance, what is it? Um, I mean, doesn't really take a PhD in apologetics uh, to know that for talking, it's the one true source of all being. Um, it's yeah. straight from Thomas. And he clearly calls God that at several points in his letters. Uh, the language he used for God in his letters is straight out of Thomas, straight out of the great Christian tradition, actually. Yeah. That's right. Um, when he when he equates origin language and origin of the mind, it is completely anti-modern. Where 
any theory of language where language is of human origin. Uh, it's an evolution of consciousness, which, by the way, he actually takes a different view of Barfield at the end of the day. Um, that's where I part ways with some interpretation of you know, Tolkien and Barfield. Um, yes, they have common cause, Barfield influenced Tolkien, but in a way for Barfield, language is all about an evolution of of consciousness. Yeah. I think for Tolkien, language is more something in itself. Yeah. And it points us yeah. back to God. Yeah, I think right. um, yeah, I think Barfield ha has influenced like figures like Stephen R. L. Clark and figures like that that I think move more in that direction rather than the Tolkien. Yeah. Um, but you no, know, on, on that, Tolkien was completely in disagreement with all the main theologies of language of his days, because most of them were of a more materialistic. No view. You know, this, impl uh, this implies, of course, Yannick, that, that even Christians uh, who are uh, using language are oftentimes unwittingly uh, adopting a materialist uh, sort of understanding of language as they're doing theology or even apologetics. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, now, what, what, what can we do to, I mean, is there, is there any kind of revival of interest in looking at uh, language the way Tolkien did, or is he just a a freak of nature, just <laughs> so out of out of uh, uh, touch with? You both. <laughs> uh, honestly, nobody can. We can't really go back to Tolkien. Um, and sometimes, you know, when we talk about who's faithful to Tolkien, the way we explain him, nobody. You have a, to be a pre-Vatican one <laughs> Roman. English Roman Catholic, you have to be a philologist, uh, a great expert of Northern tales. <laughs> Who is that? Nobody. Um, so is there a freak of nature at this point? Probably is. Um, and in a way, if he was not, he would, he would not have that much influence even yeah. now. Um, so what can we do? Um, I think we need to pay attention to stories first. Um, you know, Tolkien's great... Um, struggled when he was, uh, when he applied to uh, Oxford. Uh, and actually his, um, kind of like his letter of motivation when he wrote to, the, uh, to Oxford was that he, want, he wanted to bring back together language and story, yeah. literature yeah. and language, uh, which he was never able to do. Uh, he had a great project with Lewis uh, to kind of like transform the way Oxford was managing its department of linguistics and literature. Uh, a complete failure. Yeah. Um, but in his letter, he's really saying, if you get me, uh, I will bring those two together because you can't dissociate language from story. So how you get back to a decent view of language? Um, go back to decent stories. Um, and I think in a way, uh, well, maybe that's going to resonate with, with you, Chris, but um, we need better Christian fiction writers. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I think, not, not yeah, we, yeah, we've, we've, no, yeah, we have we, good we, theologians. We need better fiction writers. Yeah, we've touched on that many times. One of the things that, uh, you know, we've noted uh, in different episodes is that um, everybody admires the Inklings, but no one thinks like them and no one's interested in thinking like them. They're, yeah. they're, they basically want to simulate almost like a, in virtual reality and get the same results without having the theological or the philosophical uh, backgrounds that would inform. The, now, you know, even if you have that, I mean, they were they were they were brilliant scholars and, and writers but you're not going to get anywhere close if you approach writing the way H.P. Lovecraft did and expect to get Tolkien. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so like, in fact, I would say in some ways, H.P. Lovecraft is closer to Tolkien than most Christian fiction uh, that we see today. I, I would absolutely say so, even though we are in a completely different genre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if many listeners have, have, uh, have read Lovecraft. Uh, it's com very different. No, don't expect elves and all that. <laughs> right. um, no, uh, but the the way we think about language um, is reflected in the way we use language to write, uh, the way we build stories, and I think there is no better way to regain this like whole view of language as really carrying meaning. 
than in writing good story, meaningful story. Um, I, I have to say that um, some non-Christian writers have also tried to do that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to butcher his, her name in English. Or Ursula Le Guin. Yep. Maybe yep. Right? Ursula Le Guin. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Dif yeah. Very different from Tolkien. Completely different view of the world and faith. But she is conscious of the meaning of language. I think she has a different view of language. But why is her work so fascinating to study? Uh, she has a view of language. Yeah. Uh, it's a personal view of language. Um, but she thought about what language is. Um, and we need to think about that. Yeah. Um, because I, I know some evangelical theologians who told me, like word for word, that um, if one of their students want to be called Z or whatever, uh, they'll go for it because that's their choice. Yep. Um, I'm sorry, no, it's, it's not a person's choice to choose their pronouns because words have meaning. I can't choose who I am. My name is Yannick, whether I like it or not. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I like my name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I say that, but in a way, Tolkien, uh, you know, also chose his, the way he went by with his close friends. So we all, in a way, like, choose that. Um, but there is something to the fact that language, in a way, escapes our control. Well, I, and I think this, that's really where um, everything stands or falls. Do we think we can master and control language? Um, we're talking, even though we can discover the origin of language, language is always something mysterious. It, it's almost, I understand why people think it conveys meaning, uh, magic. Mm -hmm. It's so mysterious that it almost conveys magic. <clears throat> you no, know, at the name of Albereth. Mm -hmm. Nazgul. No, it's just the name of Elbereth means something. It's like, it's almost like the person is embodied there. Yeah. Um, and that's what we have to recover. In, in, and I think it comes in, from in, stories. Yeah. You know, actually, Yannick, I think language is very, very close to magic. This is one of the things that attracted me as a linguist. I mean, think about it. Um, I have an idea in my mind I produce a set of vibrations in the air using my vocal cords, my tongue, and so on. And that idea suddenly is in your mind. That is, that is about as close to magic as you're going to get. In, in that sense, I actually fully agree. Yeah. Uh, but, I, but I think what happens... I think what's happening is we are so removed from metaphysical thinking that we see that as magic. Old metaphysics would have seen it as metaphysics. Magic no. would have been uh, magic would have been something closer to science. I, I agree in a way with both of you. Uh, if you don't have metaphysics, it is pure magic, and in a way, it's arbitrary because you don't see the connection between the one who speaks and the one who hears and understands. Um, yeah. But if you have metaphysics, if you have Tolkien's metaphysical outlook, then you know that we are created for language. So I am created to speak and have meaning in the words I speak. And Glenn is meant Hello. by creation to understand. Nope. It, it, in his nature, he is made to understand me, even though I'm French. Uh, and, you know, to understand the French takes quite a bit of courage and perseverance. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but Yannick, what I need to tell you is that I may be a French historian, but believe me, you do not want to hear me attempt to speak French. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, get, get, I've been working on French for forty-four years. <laughs> <laughs> now, with regard to that, you know, there is the the uh, kind of the uh, the idiosyncratic character of every language. I mean, every language reflects a particular history and, and that kind of. Mm. But then, at a at a mm. substratum, you know, there is the there's the human. There's human nature. Uh, we're made in the image of God, and there are things that we share far more significant in, in nature than the things that di distinguish us. But I, I think, too, that as I think about the, the story arc of the Bible, so things get started with, with, with God speaking, and then we have a man speaking, and then we get to 
uh, Genesis chapter uh, nine or uh, and or eleven. I, I'm just drawing a blank right now. But the Babel story, the Babel account, where we've got um, a group of people who all you have the same language and they want to make a name for themselves. Yeah. And then God in judgment confuses the language. And then the very next chapter in chapter uh, 12, we have the promise made to Abraham that he would be given a name. So they wanted to make a name for themselves, but God puts a kibosh on that and uh, then tells Abraham that, that he would be the father of a nation and that uh, his name would be great. And then we get to the New Testament and we've got the day of Pentecost and we have this reverse of the curse that's occurring. Now, I think sometimes people, uh, when they think about Pentecost, they think in terms of kind of the emotivism that characterizes American Pentecostalism, uh, when I think maybe something far more significant is being alluded to more in the in sort of the character of what we're talking about with regard to the essences of things, that there's a, there's a real sense in which we're, you know, you know, able to communicate, uh, you know, in a, in a language that is God's. And I know where people tend to go with that glossolalia and angelic language and that kind of stuff. But I think that what, uh, is being alluded to is, is more metaphysically significant than generally people who are advocates of speaking in tongues are talking about. Anyway, that's my take. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm I'm just going to give you a little bit of linguistic weirdness here. Um, I there's a Chinese scholar who believes that Hebrew was in fact the primordial language, and that when God confused the languages, what He did is He moved the vowels around. <laughs> and now the the thing that's weird about this is that following his theories, he's found. When I when I he hadn't finished yet, but he was working through a dictionary, and he'd found five thousand cognates between Hebrew and Chinese. Huh. He had theories about how all of these languages develop on the basis of confusion of the vowels, and then sound change from there. Um, a friend of mine who was actually a congressman from New Mexico knew a few words of Navajo, so he decided to try this guy out on the Navajo. And so he said, all right, here are the words. He, you know, pronounce them, write them down in English letters. He looked at them and told them what the words meant. Huh. So there's something, I mean, the, I, the, the people who told me about this guy, you know, the, the congressman and so on said, the guy's either a genius or a crackpot or both. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that's, uh, that, that's, that's my odd linguistic story for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that's the secret to genius is being a crackpot. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, talking was one. Yep. <laughs> Right. Say we're, we've gotten to a point where we should we should wrap things up. Um, it's been a lot of fun talking uh, with you, Yannick. Uh, so is there anything you'd like for us to kind of kind of end on with regard to maybe your book or some things that you'd like to leave with our listeners? Well, I would really like to end on the um, the great uh, pretty much the, the main statement, which is um, Tolkien's an example that everything we do and think and write is informed by what we believe. Um, we all believe in something. It's not necessarily in God, uh, but we all believe something about the, the world, even if it's not conscious. And we all believe something about language, about the meaning of fiction, of writing, of imagination. Um, and that's what Tolkien is about. So if we try to understand Tolkien without going back to the roots, and for him, his root was his Christian faith, his Tommy's faith. Um, we will not be able to understand Tolkien. Um, and maybe that's a bold statement, but if you don't understand Tolkien's Thomism, uh, there is no way you will completely understand Tolkien's outlook. You will be able to enjoy his story. And clearly, many people enjoyed The Lord of the Rings, The Cimmerian, um, The Hobbit. But if you want to understand what Tolkien's about in language, the value of myth, um, now, the, the nature of the Rohirrim, for example, and the, the, the beauty of their language, um, you will not get that without knowing Tolkien's faith. And that's a great segue to talk about your book uh, again one last time. 
Uh, we're going to have a link to a place or two where you can purchase this online. Uh, this would make a great textbook for a class on Tolkien. So I'm hoping that and we have a number of people who listen to the show who actually are professors and teach in colleges around the United States. So if, uh, if that is you and you're listening to this, you really ought to get this book, uh, From Imagination to Faree, Tolkien's Thomas Fantasy by Anik Imbert. And, uh, and like I said, we'll have a link to that. But anyway, um, just as we wrap up, we want to say thank you to all the folks who support us on Patreon. Uh, we've got a growing number of people who do that, and that's a really big help. We've got a lot of folks who support us through the Fight, Laugh, Feast network, and we're really grateful for that, too. And uh, um, I guess that's all I've got to say about those things. Just thank you. And uh, bye-bye. Bye now. Bye. Bye.